Hello friends, I come to you this week from the historic ferry boat in Sausalito. Type it into Airbnb, it's delightful. We're spending a few days aboard this lovely houseboat for my wife's birthday. I've just moored up the kayak after taking it for a spin on the San Francisco Bay. And now I'm back on the deck with my little champion Rafa and about to introduce to you a very special guest. Because this week I had the pleasure of interviewing NASA scientist Steve Howell. Dr. Steve B. Howell, to be more precise, is currently a senior research scientist at the NASA Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California. He was formerly the head of Space Science and Astrobiology Division and the project scientist for NASA's premier exoplanet finding missions, Kepler and K2. And he's a thoroughly lovely man, and I'm sure you'll learn so much good stuff from delving into this joyful interview, as did I. We talk about working at NASA, what it's like at the edge of the universe, the strangest things Steve's seen, the impact of Martin Luther King on his life, COVID, the future of mankind, status quo, and so much more. You can find out more about Steve and reach out to him by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash NASA. And please subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts to get every new episode straight to your phone. It's a truly fascinating interview, and I have zero doubt this week that you will indeed enjoy the show. (sighs) The Natural High. How are you doing? Hello, how are you, sir? I can't tell you how grateful I am in advance of your time because you sent me a synopsis of your career, uh, a sort of biog about 20 minutes ago. And to be frank, it left me sort of trembling with reverence and um, <laughs> trepidation. <laughs> I've got the ear of such a studied and brilliant man and, and clearly a busy guy too. <laughs> then I remembered some YouTube videos that I'd watched of you where you came across as like such a chilled out and humble guy and that set me at ease somewhat oh cool yeah well i try to be chilled out and you know everybody has a story and everybody has lots of great things they know and that you can learn from and you know we all have had careers we've all done great things and so you know it's uh it's lovely this is this is one of the most wonderful things i get to do i mean talking to another human you know come on this is pretty good you know getting to share stories getting to know somebody a little better can't get much better than this Dude, you should be hosting your own podcast if you're not already. <laughs> but that's wonderfully magnanimous of you. I, I did note on the biog um, that you've written over 800 scientific uh, publications, uh-huh. numerous popular and technical art, technical articles, and authored and edited 10 books on astronomy and astronomical, <laughs> inst- astronomical <laughs> instrumentation. So I apologize in advance for the list of ridiculously simplistic questions that I'm about to ask you. Not at all. Not at all. They're not simplistic. And, you know, one of the first things people almost always say to me when I, you know, eventually they get around to seeing I work for NASA or knowing I work for NASA is almost without fail, they say, oh, you must be really smart. <laughs> you know, and and there's lots of smart people, you know, people are smart in many ways and different ways. And but that's amazing, that question, you know, and and if it's a person that thinks about math, the whole you bring it math. And, you know, I'm okay at math, you know, <laughs> you know, but I don't do math every day, you know, and stuff. And, and so I think we have a lot of misconceptions of what people do for jobs. You know, one of the things... You know, I'm striking off my math questions right now. <laughs> you can ask them, to. We can do some calculus if you want here in real time. But, <laughs> but dude, but dude, it's a really good point. And because I, I look at people like Elon Musk, for example, because Elon Musk is a polymath and a genius in certain areas, people right. expect him to be perfect in every area of his life. 
You know, yeah. he's accountable as he's accountable as a conversationalist. He's accountable as a politician. You know, he seems yeah. to be because he's his public figure and he's brilliant at certain areas. He's expected to be perfect in every area. I always find that so bizarre and so unfair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, people will be trying to interview in him with the presidential election coming up, for example. Oh, right. oh you're so smart. <laughs> Who are you going to vote for? You know, and, and you're right. I mean, the guy might be smart in some areas, but does that make him a political genius? I mean, you know, I don't know. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, whatever, you know, we all could do with a little more being humble, you know? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Tesla, and I'm, I want to uh, get your take on Elon Musk maybe a bit later on. But uh, sure. my wife actually works for Tesla, and it's such a cool company that, you know, whenever yeah. it's mentioned in conversation, uh, people of all shapes and sizes and creeds, they all of a sudden their ears prick up and they're, they're more excited and they're more present. And I yeah. imagine that's probably even more uh, so in relation to NASA. I mean, it's got such oh, cachet absolutely. and mystique <clears throat> as a company. Do lots of yeah. random people like me reach out to you to get a piece as soon as they hear that you work for NASA? You know, I, yeah, that, that's sort of true, right? There's, there's been lots of people that I've been interviewed with in that. But I have to say, there are very few that want to have a conversation. And there are very few that really want to learn anything about me as a person or the relationship I'm having with the person who's interviewing me. They yeah. ask me questions about science. They ask me questions about NASA. And then they always get into trying to find out the secret stuff we're doing. You know, <laughs> do we have UFOs? Do we have aliens in the basement? So you know, but you know, if you look up NASA on the web pages, you don't really get the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Conspiracy theories abound. That's right. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, so speaking of randoms emailing you like I did, I noticed uh, on the postscript, on the signature of your email, there is a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King if I'm not yes. mistaken. And it says the Absolutely. three major the three major evils. It means ultimately coming to see that the problem of racism plus sexism, the problem of economic exploitation, e.g. capitalism and education, and the problem of war are all tied together. Well, why is that quote uh, so relevant to you? What does it mean to you? And why is it so impactful? Yeah, so um, on my emails uh, over the years, I, I have put many, many quotes. Um, funny things, things that mean something to me, random things from books. I change them every so often. Sometimes people react to them, sometimes they don't. It's mostly for me. I find self-entertainment's pretty okay. Um, so that particular quote, my, my partner was reading this book by um, Kendi, this How to Be an Anti-Racism, or How to, what's it called? Whatever it is, okay, by Kendi. And so she, she shares a lot with me, interesting paragraphs that she thinks I might like. And there was one, that was basically had a, a version of this quote in it. And it was from Martin Luther King's speech called The Three Evils. And most people know about, I have a dream speech, right? And I guess most people know those words and that's probably all they know, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> about yeah. that speech. So I was just reviewing uh, a lot of speeches that he wrote, just reading through his transcripts. I got very interested in The Three Evils speech. And, you know, those three evils, and I added things like sexism because he didn't say that word, uh, things like education or poverty, he didn't say those, he just said, you know, economic exploitation, which covers all those. But, you know, this was 1963 that he gave this speech, and I think it's as true today as it was in 1963, right? And, you know, you look at our economy, the U.S. spends something like 53% of our budget on the military. 
I mean, this is out of control, right? This is not what any any relevant culture should do. Mm. And yet we're doing it. And Isn't it pure you, capitalism, though? I mean, you know... Well, I mean, sure, you can say it is, right? You can tie it to that. But to me, it's it's exploitation, right? We're, we're bombing poor people. We're oh. building weapons to do things that are horrible, right? Yeah. And the economics in our country where, where defense contractors are making fortunes... Yeah. It you know, pays for there thing. to be war. It pays yeah. to have war, right? Absolutely. So you always have to have a war. You always have to have a conflict to keep our economy going. So that quote was just incredibly relevant to me, especially I think in these times where we're we're, we're on the border of becoming a, a fascist country. You know, I mean, we're really really kind of going down the tubes here. Um, I mean, so, I know I, Donald Trump's been involved in various, you know, incursions since he's been in office, but I'm surprised yeah. there hasn't been an out-and-out war. He hasn't declared proper war on some company, on some country, because it just seems so Trump, doesn't it? And, and, it, as, it does, I, yeah. and as I said, it's only going to grow the GDP because um, manufacturing military goods is something that, you know, the American economy is built on, right? Absolutely, yep, yeah, absolutely. And I, I would bet, I don't know, because we don't know much about his, his money, because you know, he hides all his stuff, and apparently for some <laughs> Have reason- Have we seen any tax returns yet? No, and, and we probably never will, you know? I mean, I don't even understand this, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if he and his buddies have owned lots of you know, companies that produce weapons. I mean, mm. it's, it's a great investment, right? If you want to make money and don't care how you make money. Oh. It, oh yeah, it's an awful situation. Anyway, so that that quote's very relevant. I can I can send you. I'll, I'll send you after this uh, uh, a list of some of my past things in there, and you'll see they're not all so serious and and also heart wrenching. Uh, some of them are just hilarious. Some of them mean nothing to anybody but me. But I just found them funny. I think it's a really beautiful thing to do because I think it's something which emanates positivity to other people. You know, it creates, it generates thought, uh, philosophical thought, and it just you know, gives you room to pause and ruminate on something yeah. which you might not otherwise have thought about. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I think you'll see some of these other ones do too, but in a very different way. <laughs> um, I, it, it leads me to think about visionaries. Martin Luther King, a visionary, he was he was assassinated, and um, the JFK as well, the Kennedys assassinated. Is it possible to be a, a public figure, a public leader, and a visionary in America, or do you think you're just <laughs> going to get killed? You know, I once I once heard a quote from um, it wasn't Elon Musk, it was um, uh, Bezos, mm -hmm. right? Another kind of you know super rich guy who everybody Amazon. thinks is God mm -hmm. or something. And somebody was talking to him about running for president or being in public office. And, and he made this, he said this quote, which was something like, I probably don't have it exactly, but it was something like, you know, you could affect more in changing laws and changing rules and how this country works for entrepreneurs by being a rich person outside of the government than you ever can by being the president. And uh, you know, that just struck me as, wow. So probably the really smart rich people don't even think about running for president because they want to just stay outside and be rich and just buy politicians or run companies. And, you know, so. It makes so much sense. It's such a no win situation to be in. I've got so many questions that spawn from that. But I think, you know, with some like Donald Trump, it's just a pissing contest, isn't it? It's a, it's yeah. a demonstration of how brilliant and <laughs> how all powerful he is now. For him, anyway, it's the ultimate him, accolade. Yeah. <laughs> um, Barack Obama, for example, I feel that he was a visionary and he managed to survive his time in office. And I think he's more popular now than ever. But I always get the sense that, you know, one of the most visionary people in my life, especially, you know, in terms of ruling, uh, leading America, 
were his hands tied massively yeah. by the people that really own the country. Yeah, I think so. It must, I mean, president must be a very difficult job. And my guess is that, you know, you all go in with probably great um, ambitions and you make all these speeches and you really want to do positive things or, you know, positive to you anyway, right? You believe this candidate wants to do these positive things and this candidate wants to do these positive things. And then I think you get in there and you realize the job isn't a dictatorship. Well, most people realize that. Um, and, you, and you get in there and you decide that, you know, you, you're going to have to compromise, right? Because it's, and I think that's okay. I mean, I, I wouldn't want a dictator. But I think compromising, especially if you have people that aren't statesmen and aren't willing to compromise much like we in Congress and the House of Representatives, you get nothing done, right? You just wait for the year when, oh, there's more Democrats, now we'll pass some laws. Oh, there's more Republicans, now we'll pass some laws. And that's an awful way to run a government. I mean, that's just horrible, right? Because it means to me, as a, as a citizen, they don't really care about me, right? They care more about their political party or they care more about how much money they're going to make after they get out of office because somebody bought them, you know, whatever they care about. But it's not the people who elected them. And so you can get really depressed over that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is quite sad. I still hold out hope. And, you know, some of the new generation of politicians that are coming through. I mean, uh, Kamala Harris, for example, I went to her march in Oakland about yeah. a year or so ago. And she's such an impressive woman. And to me, she just strikes me as exactly the sort of change that America needs on the home front to be perceived in a different way on a global level. You know, just something that's going to open things up again rather than build walls. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes you, you have to get generations to die off before you can change things. You know, my, my father, who was a, a dear man, and we'll probably talk about my family a little bit later, I hope. But my father was a dear guy, a blue collar worker, worked for the railroad his whole life. Uh, he grew up and was a teenager during World War II. And World War II was, you know, horrible and devastating. And while it wasn't here in the United States, certainly they, they heard about things. Many of his friends went to war. Uh, he he wasn't drafted, but did try to get into the army, and I forget there was some issue with his feet or something. Anyway, but you know, to him, um, that was that was a thing you did, right? You fought for your country, and you felt like the war had a purpose. And you know, I might agree might agree about World War II. So I grew up in Vietnam era. Well, you know, Vietnam was a whole different kind of a thing, right? And my father and I had many. I wouldn't say discussions. I would say. Uh, yelling matches, <laughs> um, you know, about war and about your country and about, you know, citizenship and about doing what the U.S. tells you to do, what the government tells you to do. You know? um, but I think, you know, World War II people are, are mostly probably all gone, which is sad, but, you know, people get old and die. And I think your comment about Kamala Harris makes me think that same thing. You know, I even noticed when she gave her speech, I don't know if you were listening to the to the speech she gave at the uh, DNC, it, it it was so different in in almost every way than speeches that the old white guys give, right? The old white guys have this method, right? We, we all learned this method. I say we. I'm an old white guy. I don't give political speeches, thank goodness. But you know, but they have this method where you see it in Barack Obama, and I really liked his speech too. But you could see it in his speech. Uh, you, you see it in George W. Bush when he gave speeches, right? There's a, there's a, a, a panter to it, a message. Um, you, you repeat the message. You pause occasionally, right? There's this style. And I thought Kamala Harris talked to me like a person, 
You know, she's, she sounded like somebody I met on the street and she's just chatting with me and she used phrases and things that just, you know, were like idioms and stuff that you would never do in this sort of old white guy technique. And I agree with you. I, I thought, wow, this is so refreshing. And my hope is not only that she gets in, but she then runs for president. So yeah, it seems like that would be the natural evolution, wouldn't it? And yeah, you know, how yeah. long how long would Joe Biden last anyway? For all of his integrity, I'm sure he's a great guy. He doesn't yeah. seem like he's he's in his prime, does he? Let's no, he doesn't. he doesn't. And I don't want to be irreverent at all because he would be miles in an incomparably better than Donald Trump as president of America. But yeah, 78. He seems to be showing his age a bit, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, the bar is pretty low, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so true. You so know, true. So, but yeah, no, Biden is. You know, Biden is a person who's basically given his life to serving the country one way or the other. Mm. And, and I think that's one of the many failings of our current administration. Many of them have never been politicians, have never served anybody but themselves. And I just don't know how, even if you had a good heart, how you could jump into that role and fully understand it. Mm. You spoke about Jeff Bezos there fleetingly before, and it was interesting because on my last podcast, we had, we had a long conversation about him. You also mentioned a, a very pertinent comment that he made about how you can do more good, you know, in the corporate space than you can in the political space. Yeah. Has he, I mean, how much you know about Amazon? Do you think he's actually done that? Do you think that he is a genuine philanthropist? Or do you think that it's maybe just paying a little bit of lip service, 100 million here, 100 million there? <laughs> but not really changing the system of the world because it's something that I think, <laughs> do we absolutely have to change our systems of living now? And does it, is it the responsibility of corporations as well as, as us in the micro? Yeah, you know, we, we talked earlier about, about you, you talk to people and, and we mentioned Elon Musk and you say, well, he might be smart here and we expect him to be smart anywhere. You know, I'm not an economist. You know, I don't know things about economy. I would just say a couple things that I think of, of the few rich people that I think about I think the Koch brothers, for example, have given money to causes and people that, that I personally think are not the right things to do. However, I'm sure they think it's the right thing to do. But you know, large political contributions can buy people and sway things, and so maybe that's not what we should be allowed to do. Maybe every politician should be only allowed to have so much campaign money, period, and not accept contributions. Of course, that won't happen, but anyway. Um, Bill Gates, I think, does good things with a lot of his money and his foundation and education and that. You know, my one comment maybe about Amazon is that how do you have a company that pays their board of directors lots and lots of bonuses, yet pays no federal taxes? You know, that, that's just not right. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure what they did was legal, but it means the tax laws are wrong, right? That, that just shouldn't be the way it is. So, you know, you can take from that what it is. Those are, those are you know, maybe facts as I know them. But, I, I, you know, I, I can't say anything about him personally or whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. I don't know. You know, good and bad are such relative terms, right, Oliver? I mean, you <laughs> it's know. It's so true. It's like so right it's, and wrong. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm genuinely concerned about the proliferation of humankind beyond the next hundred years because of the way that we are behaving and the way, even now with COVID, for example, I think it's a lot of people are going back to business as usual just a little bit too quickly without considering the ramifications of where we're at in the world right now and how, I mean, do you believe that we need systemic change right now in terms of the way that we live? Amazon's a good example from the top, not really doing anything in terms of sustainability, still, you know, cutting down millions of millions of acres of trees every day <laughs> and all for all their packaging and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. 
and how serious do you think this situation is right now? Is it just like another bump in the road in humanity and everything will be fine? Or do you think that this is like the real warning before <laughs> yeah. the apocalypse? Yeah, so, you know, COVID to me is, is a lot like climate change. You know, these are incredibly complicated issues and very devastating for the human race and, and for the planet. Although, you know, we say, oh, the planet. You know, if, if, all, if all of us humans died tomorrow, the earth could care less, right? I mean, you know, the earth, <laughs> so the earth might be happier, you know? I mean, so it's not like we're going to destroy the It's done it before. That's right, yeah. You know, we're, we're going to maybe destroy our life form and take us with us, but, you know. I think that we, we as a society, and I think it's, it's unfortunately true now in many parts of the world, in developed countries at least, uh, think that scientists and people that are scientific knowledgeable are not really worth listening to and not really, you know, a way we should think about um, situations. And, you know, I'm a scientist and sure, I think science is, is important, but I think that, you know, many things are important, not just science. But if you're going to fight something like a virus, shouldn't you get people that have studied viruses for decades and know about viruses and, and actually you know, get the information they know and try to listen to them and do things scientifically instead of you know, stupid ideas like drinking bleach or, um, you know, taking some drug that has nothing to do with it. I mean, so, so if, you, if you do things that aren't scientific, I think you're, you're really doing a, a, a bad service to humanity. And we do that also with climate change, right? We're not looking at the facts. We're not looking at science. COVID does not suit the American administration. Yeah, and you're, you're talking about cutting down trees. You know, these are irreversible things we're doing. Now, to, to make sense, I read a book years ago. I read lots and lots on all kinds of topics. I'm a pretty avid reader. And the book I found for a nickel or a dime or something in a library, and it was written in the 1930s, I believe. And it was called something like uh, The Plundered Planet. And it was a book by a person in the, I believe the 20s or 30s, the 1920s or 30s. You have to say 1900s now, don't you? Last century. Uh, and, and it talked about how uh, society and humankind were destroying. It talked about we're digging lots of mines. We're digging open pit coal mines down trees and large factories, were damning rivers. I mean, it went on and on and on about how this has to be the end of days and that the earth is being completely destroyed by humanity. Now, you know, I might agree none of that was very great or good, mm -hmm. but here we are a hundred years later, and we're still here. You know, you might say that this is more serious, and maybe it is, you know, I don't know. But I think that we, we've survived lots of things. And this was just about the time when the national parks were being set up. So there was, you know, some people with some uh, vision, saying, well, maybe we should save some stuff, you know, let's not destroy everything. And, you know, people were around, perhaps this last four years is a, you know, a blip in history. And we can, we can change that and get back to, you know, some kind of thing that's more of a, of a good thing for humanity and good thing for our planet. I don't know. You know, we have lots of leaders now that are, I would say, very much uh, anti-science, out for themselves, and completely interested in making money and economics compared to, to things, you know, things that are good for humanity. And mm. 
those countries are all kind of suffering. And in fact, it's kind of interesting to note that the, the cases where COVID is going rampant are, are almost aligned with those countries, um, which, you know, which to me is not a coincidence at all. You know, it's a, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's us, us doing things that aren't so good. So, you know, we, Brazil and America, basically, we're referring to, aren't we, specifically? Look at Fauci, you know, like public enemy number one as far as Donald Trump's concerned. Yeah, well, you, you know, he, he quickly got kicked out of the press conferences because he was getting too much press, right? <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to talk to him and hear what he had to say, and it's like, get out of here. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. But you know, that's what I'm thinking with with guys. I, I consider myself to be a feminist, and with guys, it's so much of it. Even maybe subconsciously, it's so much of it is a pissing contest. Whereas I, I, I really believe that if women had the positions of power that men do in this world right now, they'd do a <laughs> so much better job. Well, I would agree with you 100. percent And I would, I would quote, a, or I would, I would use Germany as a great example. I mean, Germany oh, is. Cool. Man, Germany is doing fantastic things, right? In terms on so of, many uh, levels. On so many levels, yeah. And you know, I, I think it's it's uh, completely not lost on many people that having not an old white guy in charge is a good thing. Oh my God, we're going to have to wait a few more years, it seems. But yeah, it's definitely on the way. Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Tell, tell me about your journey. Like, how did science first capture your imagination? And I'd love to know about it in the context of your family as well, because I don't know where you're from and. Love to find out more in general. Yeah. Okay. So I, I grew up in a in a small town in western Pennsylvania. Um, mm. So you're you're probably not natively from the United States, but um, Pennsylvania's from from California. People say it's the East Coast. Right. <laughs> but, but if you lived in western Pennsylvania, you believed you grew up in the Midwest. Right. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> so you know it's a it's a it's sort of a mindset, I guess. Uh, my town had 400 people in it. And uh, most of the people were coal miners or they worked for the railroad or they ran a, a small business in the town. Uh, I was interested in science since the day I can remember. I, I can't remember a day in my life ever where I just wasn't interested in learning something and mostly learning something about nature, uh, the metals, trees, bugs, insects, the night sky. Just, it just, I don't know, somehow was in my brain from the very start. And my, my parents, um, you know, we weren't very rich. My, my father, as I said, worked for the railroad his whole career. My mother was a stay-at-home mom uh, until uh, both my brother and I graduated from high school. And then she worked just for a few years, m much to really the, my father not really liking that so much. He, he, he thought he should be the breadwinner. He should be at home. He was the guy. Anyway, so, um, but they were always incredibly supportive of, occasionally buying me a book. Uh, we, we didn't have a lot of money, as I said, but we had, had some books. Uh, they had a lot of interests themselves, which were meager, but fascinating. My father liked all kinds of music. My mother was very much interested in uh, reading and, and learning uh, things about history. Uh, she was a pretty horrible cook, uh, but you know, <laughs> so we, we we didn't we didn't eat very well. Um, my father, as, as I mentioned, the railroad his his job was um, such that he he would work near various um, sort of uh, places that what are they called places that um, killed cows. Okay, uh, you know, slaughterhouses, you know, yeah, slaughterhouses and stuff, yeah. And so if, in those days, there there were no real markets for things like organs and brains and, and stuff like that because right. they were just thrown away. Mm. You know, today they're, they're sort of a delicacy. So my father would bring interesting things home for free and we would eat them. Wow. And you know, it was, it was not the greatest thing. Um, 
many people uh, think that's why I'm a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian since <laughs> I was about 11. <laughs> and, and I don't know, but um, anyway, so it was a meager existence, but a great little, you know, great life as a kid. I played in the woods and played outside all day. I had friends in the neighborhoods. You know, our town was, the closest big city was Pittsburgh, which was about 40 miles away. Mm. And but Pittsburgh was you know worlds away in, in at those day and age. You were living and in so, nature essentially. Oh yeah, and and you know Beautiful. we we didn't have sort of you know we didn't think about as kids about you know drugs or you know having okay. people sell drugs at our school. We didn't think about crime. You know it just it was wow. like a very bucolic nice existence. Mm. And uh, I went to college in Pittsburgh. My first two years of college were at a community college in Pittsburgh. And it was such a shock. I mean, I had been in Pittsburgh before, but only, you know, went in to see a movie or because we had no theater in our town. We had no fast food. We, we had nothing. And so you went there to see a movie or something. And, you know, you, you didn't get a real flavor for the city. But going into Pittsburgh to college, riding the bus in and then walking to my college, which was in a not great area of the city at the time, uh, you know, it was a real education for me. And, and I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. Um, to get out of my little existence of my town and, you know, meet other people and see other worlds. And I've just never, never went back. I mean, I never lived there again. I left when I was 17 and a half and went off to college and just, yeah. You know. Does it so still have it's, a warm it's, place in your heart though? You know, I, I would never want to live there again. Mm. Um, I, I miss occasionally a few days in the spring and in the fall. It's a beautiful <laughs> place, America. Pennsylvania, right? A lush green... It is a very beautiful place. And, um, you know, and, and Pittsburgh itself has become a really lovely city now. I mean, really, unfortunately, gentrified a lot of neighborhoods, which which basically means you kick a lot of people out. So that's mm. not so good. Well, um, San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, it's like everywhere, right? I mean, the, the whole term of gentrification sounds so pretty and so you know, gone with the windish or something. And you seem to be like a real positive guy anyway. So every new experience you're going to have, you're going to be, you're going to see it as sort of glass half full. But do you think that the lack of amenities and entertainment from when you were growing up, do you think that fueled your imagination? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, there were days where, you know, for the whole day I, I had a rock and a stick and, and, and you know, I, I entertained myself all day. You know, I did things. You know, and, and um, you know, it kind of, it kind of, I think about now, um, I don't know, you see lots of, lots of young people with, you know, screens in front of themselves. <laughs> all I was just about to go on to this. Go on. Yeah, you know, and, and little kids, like, I'm bored. And, you know, if I ever said I'm bored to my mom, it was like, get outside. Yeah. Go play. You know, it's like, do something. Be imaginative, right? Think of something to do, you know, and. And, uh, yeah, so I just think if you're bored, it's your own fault. I mean, you know, you, you, geez, you know, use your head and do something, but yeah, absolutely. Oliver, my, you know, my upbringing was, was, um, very much, uh, you know, fueled my imagination and my creativity and my desire to learn. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you know the, the, I guess he's a naturalist now, but I always think of him as a, as a person who studied ants, this guy, EO Wilson. I'm talking about and, no. Yeah, and uh, he's like the world expert on ants. He's he's probably in his eighties now or something, and um, and or Oliver Sacks, maybe you know Oliver Sacks yes, as well. Yes, I do. Yeah, he's definitely not yeah, so, an expert on on the ants, is he? <laughs> yeah, so no, no, he's he's sort of like a you know expert on on the brain, and yeah. he became a medical doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And so those two those two people, if you read anything about their youth, 
you know, they didn't grow up in, in well, Oliver Sacks grew up in, in uh, I think, New York. Um, E.O. Wilson grew up in a relatively small town in the South, uh, maybe, maybe akin to my small town, but, you know, in the South instead of in, in Western Pennsylvania. But, uh, you know, they're, they're people that somehow, I think you're, you're born with this curiosity and you just spend your life being curious and learning and, and you, you know, I mean, those guys are famous and I'm, I'm not sure I am or I will be, and that's okay. I'm, I'm happy to be just me, but you know, they both had these existence. I think they're similar to mine where you, you just, you just want to learn stuff and you can entertain yourself and you just dig into whatever it is you want to learn about and you, you find out about it. Yeah, and you know, we all there's some but there's some nature but also some nurture in there you think you need to the right conditions needs to be around you in order to because i mean I, I do find it strange personally i don't know if you think this but i find it strange how little time the average person spends looking up at the stars and looking at the sky <laughs> i mean it's the most incredible thing but um yeah yeah especially young people they're much more i don't want to get into this oh young people are today sort of thing but it, it's interesting <laughs> philosophically it's interesting isn't it like they're a hundred times more riveted by call of duty or whatever computer game they've got in their hands than the incredible <laughs> solar system and it seems that maybe i don't know has has our enthusiasm and our wonder and our awe of the solar system and the stars like lessened over time well you, you certainly hit on a point about the you know the, the nurture part as well i mean if, if my if my father were you know would have been a, a drunkard and beat me or i would have grown up in a <laughs> in a neighborhood where, you know, guns and drugs and I feared for my life, you know, I mean, things, things would have been very different, I think, you know, and I don't know how I would have turned out. And I can't imagine people in those conditions are thinking about, I want to be a scientist, you know, I mean, you, you've got to survive. Mm. And I think, yeah. you, know, the, you know, one of the evils, you know, of the three evil speech, you know, about this economics is, is that same thing. I mean, poverty is a horrible thing and our country to call itself a, a country, it should be ashamed of itself. Anyway, so, you know, that's a discussion, but um, looking up at the sky, well, you know, a lot of people live in cities and the problem in cities, of course, is you can't see the sky very well. And people also live in their houses much more than they ever did. I mean, you've seen this too, where you, you know, we live in a, in a pretty small house here down the peninsula and we have, you know, not much land. Nobody has a lot of land if you're in a modest house in California. Um, but you know, we've seen in our neighborhood and it's true everywhere, people rip down these old houses and they build a house that's two stories tall and it goes, you know, to within six inches of their, of their lot on every side. Right. And then they, they pile their family into that house and they never open their curtains. They never open their doors they never open their windows and they all have their own room where they can sit with their own device. And it's like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, get outside, you know, you, you just learn so much, breathe some fresh air, talk to your neighbors, um, interact with the world a bit and, and, you know, put some, but who's to blame for that? Is the individual to blame for that? Or is it the pressures of, you know, of consumerism that are forced upon us subconsciously a lot of the yeah. time that sort of guide us? And I mean, I don't want to, you know, I, obviously people need to take responsibility, but it does seem like we're geared, the world is geared towards, you know, just consumerism and having these shiny things to look yeah. at and play with instead of doing the more natural yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly both. You know, I, I knew a a family, you know, these are all apocryphal stories, so you can't, you know, do anything, but oh, here's a story. But you know, a family, the dad was talking to me and he said, you know, I'm having real, real trouble with my kids at dinner. They bring their phones to dinner. And I said, well, do you bring your phone to dinner? And he says, well, yeah, but 
but but only to, only in case an important message comes in. <laughs> and, and I said, well, look, one thing is you're not setting a good example, and your important messages and their important messages are, are the same, right? They get a, a message from their friend, that's important. And I said, and who controls their phones, them or you? You know, I mean, what are you doing here, right? So yeah, there's cases like that, right, where I think the parents need to step in. Um, but yeah, consumerism is tough, right? People want stuff because in our culture, our capitalistic culture, having stuff is success, right? And, and so if, you know, if I have the latest car, if I have the latest phone, if I have the biggest house, somehow I feel like I've become a success in my society. Instead of, um, I know five of my neighbors, you know, I, I go and volunteer at the soup kitchen. I mean, let's, let's, you know, what are the real metrics we should have to be a successful member of society? You know, I looked up the word police. We were, um, you know, there was all the issues with police lately and police being mean and police doing bad things. And, you know, I don't want to get into anything about that because that's not really the point of this conversation. And many people over, over, I like it to be as wide ranging as possible. And that's certainly, it's certainly a relevant, pertinent conversation. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Well, you know, people overstep their authority in, in all places and people do horrible things. And, you know, I don't think many that many of the things, you know, that are, have made the news are right. So don't get me wrong mm -hmm. there. At the same time, I don't think you can just say, let's get rid of the police. I mean, that, that to me is like swinging the pendulum too far the other way. But I, I looked up the word police and police, the origin of the word police, came from the word policy right. and from, from the Greeks. And there were times in cities in Europe did this and, and other cities, you know, way back even before Europe was Europe, where there were policies written down as to what was expected of you to be a member of this town, to be a member of the society in this right. town. And that sounds like such a great idea, right? right. And, and you basically signed these, right? And you said, wow. I want to be a citizen of this town. I'm going to sign up for these policies. You know, be nice to your neighbor. Don't steal. I don't know, whatever the policies are, right? Yeah. And so maybe we should think, you know, I'm not sure you can force people to sign things and all that, but maybe we should think about, you know, what is it we all should do as members of society? And, and maybe then we should do them, you know? <laughs> I mean, we, we should, you know, Think about that and at least have, have some processes of thoughts and maybe cities should write down and, you know, and, and put it in the newspaper or make it available at the town center or something. Here's what we expect from mm. you as a citizen of this community. Mm. It won't get everybody because there's always people that don't do whatever they're supposed to do uh, or, or what's good because then we're back to good and bad. Um, but I don't know, maybe it would make you think about totally. it. Totally, 100%. We need to be more accountable. We need to be more collective and community-based again, don't we? I mean, the, I've been thinking so much about this recently. The idea of community is all but destroyed. Yep. It's Doing stuff for other people. Um, I was speaking to a guy who, worked, who lives in an eco-village last week, and he was saying that basically he puts in two hours of work, community work every week, but there are 100 people in his village. So for the, everybody has to do two hours a week, and they all do completely varied tasks based on what they're good at and what they want to do. But for those two hours of his community work each week, he's getting 200 hours of community work put into his community every week. So his, his community of 100 people is improving by 200 hours of labor every week. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful common sense idea. Policing, for example, policemen need to be perceived as loving people again 
there and they need to be trained as such you know uh, we so, so much of police training it seems to me goes into um, weaponry and arms and fighting whereas that should be literally for me last resort on the on the on the schedule of teaching police people how to police they should be in england and in ireland in particular they still are and um, pillars of the community in ireland I, sh I should say really because there is definitely an us versus them sense with the police in england these days but in ireland policemen are typically upstanding love beloved members of the community who you go to when you have a problem and, and that perception's healthy. And, you know, hardly any Irish policemen carry guns. Only a very select few carry guns, like specific armed units. Whereas, you know, in America, it's just standard, isn't it? Well, you know, America's all about guns, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so when I, you know, I grew up, I mean, police were, were friendly people. They were people you trusted, people you could go to, you could get rides from. Yeah, they were, you know. I think, you know, a couple of things about police, you know, and this goes back to our earlier conversation about our, our very militaristic kind of economy here, is I think if you're, a, if you're anybody, uh, whether you're a policeman or you're a private citizen, and well, private citizen, you know, a citizen, not a policeman, and you, ha you can get access to horrible weapons of, of, you know, mass destruction, machine guns, bazookas, body armor, right, whatever, then I think you're going to start thinking that, you know, you're, you're in the military or you need to do military things. And I, I'm sure every policeman doesn't think this way. And I'm sure every person that, you know, owns guns doesn't think this way, but it, it's, I think it's a way that you can, right? So we've outfitted our military because we have so much extra military stuff because we, the military has bought tons of it and now they can get rid of it. And so I think, you know, you start outfitting people with, you know, machine guns and camouflage and helmets. And do you really need to do that? And, and it, it's on both sides, right? Because you're now saying as a policeman, and I have the utmost respect for anybody who becomes a policeman because the job has got to be very scary and stressful. And I'm so happy some people decide to do that because I, I would be too chicken to do it. And, but, you know, and they're, 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 you know, for them, they're saying, well, look, we have to fight people that have these same things too. I fully understand that, but why can't we take them away from everybody? You know, why are we still such a country that's crazy about guns? And why do we let a piece of a phrase, you know, the right to bear arms, not the whole sentence, not even the whole thought. Why do we let that piece of that phrase, you know, give us the fact that we can't change the laws, right? Yeah, but based on this militarization that we've referred to several times and based on the violent rhetoric coming out of Donald Trump's mouth a lot of the time, I mean, he's taken things to a completely different level, hasn't he? He's pushed the sort of bounds of, I wouldn't say acceptability, but he says such outrageous stuff all the time, but it's just, we've all become like desensitized to a degree, haven't we? But yeah. his, his violent rhetoric towards China, for example, when you see the militarization, when you see the world getting more and more violent, are you still hopeful that, as you said earlier, you know, we, we've got over this stuff. We, we read this prophetic book in 1930, which was similarly alarmist and, and you know, we're still around. Do you think that, you know, you know necessity is the mother of invention that we will find a way? Well, I, I, I am a hopeful person and I have to believe we will. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that we have you know, little time left of this, this sort of kind of a, of a government and, and it will change and head back in a direction that's, I think, better for, for us as a country. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's a, you know, scary times. Um, I think for, for younger people, um, you know, certainly that 
number of people that I know, they're, they've either lost their jobs or they're in jobs, but they're wondering what their future is going to be. You know, how, mm. how can we continue like this? And, you know, we have what I would call protests in the streets. You know, it reminds me a lot of the, the 1960s, which, you know, is vivid in my imagination or my memory I mean, mm. from um, protesting the war in Vietnam, where we felt like that was, you know, many people felt like that was, an, you know, an unjust thing that was that was once again sort of taking uh, its toll on on not the rich white leaders, but on the, you know, a lot of the poor people. And mm. people that weren't in power and in charge, while while certain others, you know, bought their way out of going to service or whatever. And I think we're seeing that again now. You know, remember the one percent movement, right? That kind of came and, and sort of died. But I think this is mm. just more of the same there, right? This is this is so few people have all the money and they're in power, and the rest of us, you know, don't have a lot of say. Now, recently, a friend of mine told me that his his take on the up- upcoming election was you had a you have a choice. You can vote for fascism, or you can vote for our country remaining an oligarchy. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, those are your choices. And, yep. and uh, so, you know, you, you tell that to people and some of them say, well, I think it's, I think it's that one choice is, is a fascist country that is an oligarchy. And the other one is just an oligarchy. So, you know, I, I might pick just the oligarchy, right? <laughs> it's, of course you would, but you're right. I mean, Hillary Clinton wasn't exactly a com- compelling uh, alternative to, to Donald Trump at the time, was she? Because she was just part of the establishment. And of course, I was t- totally would have voted for her had I been an American citizen. <laughs> but still, she wasn't that compelling because she didn't represent change, did she, really? Well, you know, I, I agree. I think she, you know, any anybody almost would have been better than, you know, currently. Mm. But, um, mm. yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm, I, I guess I'm hopeful. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I'm glad. I love your positivity. <laughs> We've taken a massive segue, as I tend to do. I'm a very rambly chap. But um, tell me more then about your development, your education. It, it's something which you had great enthusiasm for science, but like, how did you channel that? And how did you get into ultimately NASA? Because it seems like an incredibly competitive industry to get into and be successful in. Well, it's, you know, so so somehow astronomy became became the science. I liked all kinds of sciences, but somehow astronomy became the science that I love. And and when did you have your first telescope? Uh, yeah, my first telescope, my, as I mentioned, we weren't very, very, very uh, well up. My father sure. and mother for, she's probably my 10th or 11th birthday, bought me a telescope. Okay. And it was, you know, at the time, it was the greatest thing ever. Now I think back, oh my God. You know, it was not much, but it was a, a small little, little telescope. And uh, I used it every night. I would stay up a lot. My, my parents would worry because I had school the next day and school was so uninteresting to me. Uh, compared to looking at the night sky. And, was science taught well at school? Well, my, my schools were pretty rural and pretty, um, I don't want to say back. So it wasn't like the creme de la creme of academia? No, nah, not at all. You know, and when I, I really right. realized how how behind they were when I went to college and other people in my college classes were telling me what they, what they did in high school, and, and I just couldn't mm. believe it. Um, mm. So to give you an example, my school, so my graduating class was 88 people. And wow. two of us went to college and the other person dropped out after their first year. So, oh my God. Yeah, you know, so it was, it was, um, interesting times. Uh, can I just say though, it, it sounds like your parents encouraged you, but did you really have to like gr- grasp the nettle with this then with your education in order to forge that future for yourself? Well, I, I read everything I could. I, I read books. Mm-hmm. I, we had this little bookmobile that came to my town 
from the Pittsburgh library. And it was this little traveling van of books. And I would go and take every book they had on science. And, and then I would, you know, I knew the person that kind of ran it and I'd say, you know, bring me more, bring me more, bring me more, you know? And, and I would just read uh, voraciously. I, I wrote letters to professional astronomers and many of them wrote back to me. I mean, it was one of those amazing things. They would write back and, you know, I'm sure my letters to them were like some little kid who didn't know what he was doing, right? I'm 13 or 14 writing letters to, you know, famous astronomers and you'd get a letter back and they would almost always send you some photographs taken by a big telescope. And so I'd write right. to people at Mount Palomar Observatory or people at Pic du Midi in France and you know, they would send me back a picture and I had this collection of photographs of planets and nebulae and, and it was just, you know, one of those things. That, and you were fascinated. Yeah, it's like, I want to see that. Literally see that. starstruck. Yeah, literally, yeah. So I built telescopes. <laughs> uh, I became a member of the Pittsburgh Amateur Astronomy Society, which wow. was in Pittsburgh. And as I mentioned, I lived far away. So I would take buses into Pittsburgh you know, in the, in the early evening, to, they'd have their meetings maybe at six or seven o'clock, and then we would stay out and stargaze. And then somebody from there was nice enough to drive me home at like midnight or something, you know? And, Man, and, and what a self-starter. Do you realize how driven a person you are? Uh, apparently. <laughs> yeah. nope. Is that what passion is? Is that what passion that's, is? That, that's is it passion that makes you do that? Yeah, I think that's what passion is, right? You don't know the crazy things you do. Uh, to, to drive yourself, right? You just know you need to do them somehow. And so right. I didn't know what an astronomer was. I had read books about Herschel and Newton, you know, these famous people. And, mm. and they were rich people that lived in big houses and had had maids and assistants and built telescopes out on their estates. And I thought, oh, okay, this is what you do. This is what is- Are we coming back to the Martin Luther King quote? <laughs> <laughs> it's all tied in so beautifully. It is. And so somehow I thought, okay, somehow I'll become an astronomer and I'll become rich and I'll have a big house and I'll have assistance. And, and you know, and then you go to college and you learn a little more about what it means to be in science and you go to the next level of college and you learn a little more about what it means. And, you know, eventually you, you become an astronomer. I mean, it's just, you keep, you keep learning about what you need to do and you struggle and you fight your way through and, you know, and, I had, I've had lots of jobs. I've had such an interesting career working for uh, various places around the world and in our country and ended up at NASA almost 10 years ago now to become the project scientist for the Kepler mission. And, you know, what a fabulous job. I mean, what a fabulous thing to do as a scientist to be the head of one of the coolest NASA missions ever. You know, so absolutely incredible and the project came to an end recently was the kepler retired or the k2 retired one of the two? yeah so so k2 was the same spacecraft but it it was a kind of a different mission after the spacecraft have had some hardware failures and it needed but the overarching mission was to find stars and planets right that's right it was to find well specifically to try to find planets like the earth are there small planets that orbit stars like the sun that could have liquid water on their surface and therefore they could possibly have life. That was the right. that was the real point. I mean, Kepler did so many other things in so many other areas of, of astronomy and science. And, and indeed, it, it was very successful at that mission of finding planets that could possibly be planets that have life. Was the end goal to find places that were potentially uh, would potentially support human life? You know, Different people might have different takes on there. I, I think the goal was to find places that potentially could have any kind of life. 
Okay. Whatever, you know, I mean, humans are us, and I don't think humans exist anywhere else. Uh, I think we're a product of the evolution of this planet, mm -hmm. things we call humans. Yep. Now, there, there could be things that are walking around somewhere else, and I don't know what they call themselves, um, but I don't think they're going to be humans. And, you know, people, people think that you could take a person, right? So I find another planet, somehow in the next 20 years, I find it has liquid water on its surface from some telescope observation that is made or something. Mm -hmm. And I say, ah, okay, we're saved now, right? We can destroy the Earth. We all jump in a spacecraft. We all go there, and there we go. You know, it doesn't work that way, right? Our, our evolution on this planet is, is very complex. And as a human, you, you rely on so many Variables. tiny, well, tiny things on this planet as well. You rely on bacteria. You rely on viruses. You rely on insect life. I mean, you rely on so many things that have evolved along with you. In a certain sequence as well, in the right sort of sequence. Yeah. And if you just take a person and you go to some other planet that might have liquid water and might have a nice temperature, it's not going to have all these same bacteria and viruses probably. Mm -hmm. And things there may or may not be okay with your body and your viruses may or may not be okay with those. And so, so one of the main preoccupations of this decade-long project was not to find another place that humans could go and live, potentially. No, no. It wasn't about we're going to colonize the, the universe. It was about right. the search for life. Are we alone? And, you know, if you could find some other life, I think, which I'm 100% sure exists. Um, okay. I can't point to which planet and where, but, you know, it has to. But what we did find, for example, was in our galaxy alone, and we're, the Milky Way galaxy is one of hundreds and hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. In our galaxy alone, there's probably something like 20 billion planets <laughs> that, are, that are roughly you know, something like the Earth. How do we calculate that? Because we can't see them all, can we? That's right. We can't see them all. So you calculate that by, by looking at the planets Kepler found that are something like the Earth. And I say something like it. Um, that means they could have liquid water. They're roughly the size of the Earth. They roughly orbit a star, maybe not like our sun, but a star where they can have the right conditions on their surface in, in temperature and water that we believe are important for life. And then you look at the space that Kepler looked at, which is a, a small piece of the galaxy, but there should be nothing special about that piece. And you extrapolate that to the entire galaxy. But there's a lot of maths in there. Yeah, there, yeah and, a, and a lot of you know, statistical belief. Yeah. Mm, but okay. you know, scientifically, you, you don't just believe, right? Scientifically, you do things to show that this is, this is you know, logically correct. Mm -hmm. Okay, so can we both agree then that it's highly unlikely that we're alone in the universe or in the multiverse or whatever it is? I, I'm happy to agree with that, sure. I mean, you'd probably <laughs> say impossible, would you? Would you go that far? Yeah, I would say it's impossible we're the only life. So how sure. have you ever tried to guesstimate how many other life forms you think there are in the universe? You know, there's no way of doing that, mm. right? Um, for example, if you, if you were an alien and you could fly around in a spaceship and... You know, maybe some can. I don't think people come visit the Earth because stars are really far apart. Okay. But if, if you came and visited the Earth 100 million years ago, the Earth would have been a very different place, hmm. right, 100 million years ago. Um, there, there would have been some life, but it wouldn't have been humans. Okay. 
the, the temperature and conditions and the atmospheric gases and the composition of the atmosphere, you know, it wouldn't be like it is now. Mm. And, and 100 million years is a blink of the eye, right? We've been around for five, four and a half to five billion years as a planet. Right. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of interest in time as well. Course, you know, how, yeah. how long, you know, is the earth going to be habitable to humans forever? Probably not. Uh, we certainly know that in another five billion years, our sun is going to evolve. Mm. Our sun is going to make the earth a, a place where we can't live anymore as humans. Because it's too hot. It's going to be too hot. And eventually the earth will likely get completely enveloped inside the expanding sun's atmosphere. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be gone long before that. But eventually the earth will be probably destroyed. Mm. So, you know, we, we know that we aren't going to be here forever. And that's probably true with other planets, even if they're similar to the Earth now, or they will be, or they have been. And so, you know, there's this, there's this famous thing you've probably heard of called the Drake Equation. Right. And it tries to estimate how many other civilizations there are. So you put together a lot of parameters in that equation, and one of them is how many other planets are like the Earth. Another is how long do civilizations that we would call intelligent last? Right. And I think one of the things that equation misses, because people have used that equation to say, uh, well, let's, let's you know, go look for other planets. Let's listen for communications. You've probably heard of the SETI project, this very famous project that's been going on for a long time now, where they, they listen for radio signals coming from other... other um, found, was it 1977 they found something that they felt was an alien life form communicating? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's things that are found occasionally, right? And there was the famous case of, of the uh, neutron star discovery, right? Where mm -hmm. the neutron star was written down as uh, on somebody hand wrote on the chart, you know, when it was found that little green men, because it was a very regular signal. And then it was determined, oh, look, this is a, a type of object we never knew before, right? This was Jocelyn Bell was a graduate student who found this and said, oh, it's now we've discovered neutron stars, right? So that's cool. Um, and I think SETI is a, a fabulous thing. You know, we, sh we should try doing things like this, right? You have to do things outside the box or you, you know, you just get what you always get, right? If you don't do anything new, you, you, you just get this. And, and we don't want this. We want more. We want new, right? In, in all, all things. Yeah. So, but, but one of the things the Drake equation doesn't have in it is that stars are really far apart. And radio signals from the Earth, even to the nearest star and certainly to many, many other stars, you know, they're just very weak by the time they get there. And yeah, they've, they've, we've been broadcasting since, you know, radio signals since for a hundred years or something. And so you would say that we've, you know, we've now our radio signals have hit every star that's within a hundred light years of the earth, wow. which is not a lot, but some, you know, some, some numbers of dozens or something, but they're pretty weak unless they're purposely spending a lot of their energy beaming something at the earth you know, our chances of detection are, are low at best. Okay, so we both think there's, there's other life forms in the universe. It's also very likely that a lot of them are far more advanced than us and a lot of them are far less advanced than us. I read something recently which said that we should, in the next 20 years, be able to find evidence of intelligent life forms elsewhere in the universe. But why then, you know, if there are more intelligent versions, more advanced versions of us, why have they not contacted us? Why have they not? been able to use their advanced technology to to do something like that yeah so there's there's a lot of assumptions in that right uh, <laughs> i i would say that that um in, in the next 20 years maybe 30 years 
I think we will have pretty good scientific evidence that there's other life in the universe. Does that make us the most advanced life form? That we're oh, the first no, ones I to think, discover it. No, I think the difference is you you can detect what appear to be very good signatures of life. Mm. I think probably easier than you can detect signatures of intelligent life. And and let me give me an example. If if I could look at a planet like the Earth from a hundred light years away with a telescope in space, I could, with an advanced telescope in space, something like that, that likely NASA and the world will build and launch in the next 20 or 30 years, I could get a measurement from that planet that could tell me that there's liquid oxygen and maybe tell me there's methane and maybe tell me there's chlorophyll. Mm. But all, and those things would make me think that that's probably pretty good evidence there's some kind of life. Right. But none of those tell me it's intelligent life. Right? None of those tell me it's walking around things versus amoebas. Right. Okay. Right? They, they don't tell me that information. So that, that's one assumption. And I, I don't, you know, maybe there's, well, so for example, if I found a signature of um, pollution, in the okay. atmosphere. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's a different story then, because now you say, oh, pollution, but now I have to be sure it's pollution from people, not a natural gas emitted by volcanoes or something. Right? Mm, okay. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing then is that, um, do you believe that as part of an intelligent society, that we would spend a lot of our effort doing things like trying to build a rocket ship that's going to go visit the, the maybe the nearest planet, which, which is maybe 200 light years away, that we think might have intelligent life to go and take a picture of it? Or would we maybe hopefully do things like making sure everybody on the earth is healthy, <laughs> making sure we, we don't have poverty and we have education? You know, being a, a society like like some of us would like us to be. Mm. And, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of resources and effort to go visit something. It's so and, true. It's so true. But you've said to me already that NASA, that is the purpose of NASA. It's, it's the purpose of discovery. I said, you know, is, is the purpose to find somewhere else to live? And you said, no, it's not about sustainability. It's about yeah. discovery. So it's the whole, it's Absolutely. the whole, the tenet of NASA. That's right. And I can put a telescope, I, NASA, you know, lots of scientists and engineers for, you know, relatively small amounts of money, yeah. things like the cost of a, an F-25 fighter plane, right? Mm. One of them. I can, I can put, you know, telescopes in space that could give me this information from in our solar system, observing a planet far away. But to build a rocket, to go there, is, is an incredible step. Of course. And, and, and if that rocket is going to carry people, you know, it's just, it just boggles the mind. I mean, we can't even get people to the moon or Mars. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And 
It's amazing how prophetic so much sci-fi is. I, I can't work out which way around it is, whether the sci-fi creates the idea and then scientists put that, execute that idea. But it seems to me like for such a long mission, people would need to use sort of cryogenics because they wouldn't have the longevity to complete the mission. Well, they wouldn't. And, and does it really help you? Let's say we want to go to a planet that's 100 light years away. That might be, might be the closest planet that we think might have life. So a rocket ship to go 100 light years in distance. How long is that going to take? Well, let's think about the fastest, one of the fastest space missions we've ever done. Uh, it, was, it was probably the New Horizons mission to Pluto. Right. It went something like 30,000 miles per hour. Boy, that sounds fast, doesn't it? Yep. It was the size of a Volkswagen bus. Wow. Okay. So... Yeah, maybe you could shove two people in there that are frozen, but you know, you probably need something a little bigger for them to survive. <laughs> and you and maybe you want to bring them back. So okay. <laughs> so you start doing the numbers and you realize, you know, it's it's hundreds of thousands of years mm, to wow. get to these other places. And that's even if we could get a, a bigger spaceship to go that fast. So uh, yeah. It, it's just an impossible <laughs> task, I think, to do. And and probably a task that would be better done by finding a planet that we think might have life and now directing some communication. Right. Makes so much sense. All right. Now, let's say that it's 100 light years away. So I'm going to build something. That, and, the, and this, I think, is, is, is uh, something that's tractable for humanity. We build some communication device. We, we hope there's life there and it's intelligent life and, and they somehow can even figure out that we're trying to communicate because you don't know that a priori. So it's going to take a hundred years for that signal to get to that planet. So the best we can hope for is that in 101 years, they send us something back. Right? Mm. So now we've spent 200 years. One assumes 200 years from now, Humans are waiting around, NASA people are waiting around to get this communication back. And let's say it happens. Okay, so now you send another communication. Now you start trying to have a dialogue with these people. Well, well eventually- <laughs> Very long-winded dialogue. Yeah, that's right. So eventually <laughs> with a delay of 200 years, you're having a conversation, but everything is 200 years ago, right? Right. Yeah, you know, and, but maybe that's okay, right? 200 years isn't much in the blink of an eye. But now I see what you're saying. Yeah, but now yeah. yeah, but now you can possibly have a a a communication with other life that that has a 200 year time span, as compared to sending a rocket there that takes 200 thousand years to get there, and then its information maybe comes back in 100 years. Makes so much sense, and that is <laughs> such a beautifully compelling and clear argument. I love it. Do you think that that's you know the other great thing about a company like NASA, for example? Lots of people say to me. Oh, SpaceX, you know, what's the point of sending reusable rockets up the moon? Even there, they're reusable. What's the point? And I always argue, and it's a bit of a nebulous argument because I haven't done a huge amount of research, but I imagine it's the same with NASA that the technological byproducts of trying to do this science all the time must be huge, like the other products that we develop along the way because of these pursuits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, people make this comparison of NASA and SpaceX, and they want to throw NASA away because they say, look, SpaceX is modern and they're building rockets and NASA isn't. You know, you have to, I think, look at what, what is the goals and what are the roles. So SpaceX as a company 
whatever they, they say and do is, is great and they have goals as well, but, but they ultimately want to make money. Right? They're a company. They have a board of directors. They have a person. They want to make money. So SpaceX, I think their goal, their first goal is we're going we're gonna to build something and we're going to carry rich people up into orbit because they can pay to go fly in orbit and we'll get $100,000 from each person and we'll fly them up mm. in orbit for 90 minutes or whatever, you know? And, and mm. that's great. Companies should do cool things. But NASA is one of the, I think, uh, granted I'll probably bias, but NASA or, or things like Pure Research is one of the greatest assets this country has that has been just left behind. Right. When NASA develops a rocket to go to the moon, the scientists are all excited. We go to the moon. You know, a, a thousand people really care about going to the moon and really, you know, use the science data and whatever. But you're right. The technology that NASA develops and the people that work with NASA develop that's where society benefits. Yeah. You know, everybody, you ask people, where does a cell phone come from? And they tell you it comes from the cell phone store. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what kind of a short-sighted answer is that, right? <laughs> you know, cell phones and our laptops that we're using right now and that, they came from scientists doing basic research. And scientists mm. never started out probably to make a cell phone, you know? And one of the things that I work on a lot is I work on imaging detectors. I build instruments that have imaging detectors. And we all have cell phones. We all have cameras in them. And those cameras in those cell phones came from now 40 years of work started in astronomy using imaging detectors. And, And that now becomes something that we use every day in our society. And people probably could say, I can't live without my camera, right? And mm. so the, the list goes on and on and on, you know, Velcro is one. For medicine as well, I'm sure, for, for, for you know, medical gains and Oh, yeah, medicine, medicine and, de- and, you know, food that's developed for the space station, like freeze-dried food. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so to me, yeah, yeah. the greatest thing about NASA building a telescope to put in space, the greatest thing about NASA sending uh, rovers to Mars has nothing to do with the science. Yeah, as a scientist yeah. and a geek, I love the science. But they are research and development organizations that cost the government almost nothing and yet provide engineering fuel and products that make us a better society. And and I think NASA doesn't do a really great job selling that. You know, NASA during the Apollo age, I think NASA had something like three or four percent of the U.S. budget. And you can see with that much money, you can do great things like go to the moon, right? So currently, I think the NASA budget is at something like one half of a percent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can talk about going to the moon and you can talk about going to Mars. But the reality is that those cost money. And people think, oh, my God, NASA costs so much because because NASA is, a, is public, the cost of NASA missions are published with everything we do, right? Oh, right. transparency. Yeah. You know, oh, this, this spacecraft went to Mars and crashed. And, and the U.S. lost, you know, $300 million. You know, one, you didn't lose it. It's not like we put $300 million in, a, in gold in a spacecraft and shot it into space, right? All that money was spent in the United States on people that work in the United States to build mm. these things, right? So none of that mm. money was lost. What was lost was the science. And so the scientists are bummed because, oh, we lost that. We spent a decade of our life developing this mission. We lost the science. But the U.S. didn't lose $300 million. 
but we don't see published in the, in the newspaper every day what an aircraft carrier costs, what a fighter jet costs, and how much money we lose there. We have similar disdain for the military. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't want to just pick on the military. You know, I, I really don't want to pick on the military because, once again, my- but Just military spending. Military spending is what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, um, think, I think people that go into the military are great, and I'm so happy people do that, and I respect them greatly. But, you know, we can- But wouldn't, some of, wouldn't some of your budget, actually, wouldn't some of that half percent of the GDP, wouldn't that actually come from uh, the Ministry of Defense as well? Because, you know, some of the money you're getting is probably from uh, military budgets, right? No, there's, there's very little military work that NASA's involved okay. with. There's some Air Force oh, wow. stuff and some stuff, but very little. Uh, mm. that, that we right in terms of communications or or uh, yeah imaging and things like that. Well, you know, certainly some imaging you know is done with the military as well, and some with NASA. Mm. But you know, there aren't there aren't generally a lot of joint projects because we don't do. I, I certainly don't do anything that's that's secret or defense related. Yeah. But you know, mm. I don't want to pick on them. So we could talk about the cost of an office <laughs> building. We could talk about the cost of a person's personal yacht. I mean, we could talk right. about the cost of, you know, building a giant apartment complex. So things cost money. And I think the question is, you know, as a society, and maybe my point is, is where do you want to put your money? Where are you going to get the best, and I hate to use this term, bang for the buck, right? All right. And, and, and I think NASA, for one, there's, there's probably many things, but I think NASA, for one, is a place where, you know, we should be putting a lot of money because what society gets from it is great. Yeah, we've seen, you know, in the recent times and another area that we are just so unprepared in is infectious disease, right? Right. I mean, here's, here's the United States, right? Supposedly the greatest country in the world, an infectious disease comes along and, and we don't have enough masks. <laughs> we know where. Right? I mean, we don't have enough <laughs> hospital beds. We don't have, you know, equipment and enough, apparently, methodology to deal with this. What do we yeah, do? And I've seen, I've just seen recent interviews by George Bush talking about the dangers of pandemics like 15 years ago and how yeah. much they're investing into it. It That's just right. seems like so what are we doing? It just became irrelevant. You know, what are we doing as a country? If you look at, you know, great civilizations, are, are we really one of them? And we want to be, we say we are, but you know, are we really? And, and can we get there? I think the answer is yes, but we have but to make changes to get there. But it's absolutely. And it's some of the, again, some of the decisions of the current administration, for example, to come out of the Paris Climate Accord, one of the only countries in the world that's not signed up to the Paris Climate Accord, which is, just makes it seem so old fashioned and backwards <laughs> thinking as a country. Yeah. Would you say that um, SpaceX has been a symbiotic relationship with NASA then, or has it been damaging for NASA? No, I think it's really good. I mean, so, you know, these, these opinions of mine are, are me as a private citizen, right? So, hmm. um, but. You know, SpaceX as a contractor uh, is doing a great job, right? They're they're making mm. products. They're you know their money comes from NASA. They're basically being paid to build these rockets for NASA. They certainly have benefited by the years of NASA technology in building rockets. Mm. Um, if I build a rocket today, as compared to the Apollo rockets that were you know started in the 1960s, of course I'm going to do a better job, right? Of course I'm going to be able to do cool computerized things. Of course, I'm going to be able to, you know, make it do better stuff because I, I now have all this technology sure. that I didn't have in the 1970s, right? Yeah. And Amazing. so, yeah, I would, I would be shocked if SpaceX was going to, you know, build rockets with tubes and analog computers. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're not going to do that, right? And, yeah, yeah. They're standing on the shoulders of giants, basically. Yeah, as we all do, right? As we all do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that it's really great to, to have companies like them 
um, that are that are doing neat things like that. And I think that again, there'll be commercial benefits that come out of here. You know, if SpaceX could build an airplane that goes into commercial service that takes me off from the airport in San Francisco and lands me in New York City in an hour, I am all in. <laughs> you know, um, and, and safety. I don't want to crash, right? But it's safely. If they can do that, I mean, I'm all in, right? Because the idea of airplanes and the idea of technology is, you know, I don't necessarily want to go faster, but if somebody could build me a transporter, man, you know, I, I love traveling to different places, but I have to say air travel gets old, going through the airport's old, security's old, time on an airplane. I've spent so many hours in an airplane and, and you know, I'd be happy with a transporter. So. And it must excite you of what Elon Musk is up to, you know, in terms of the physics of it all. You know, he's always, he seems to constantly be trying to push the boundaries. Absolutely. And that's what we all should do, right? I mean, this is where we should be. We should be at the, the cutting edge of things because otherwise we're not doing anything, right? And, and yeah, sometimes you fail and sometimes it costs money. And, you know, we, we all do interesting things. And, you know, I don't know, out of, out of research, I, I would, I'm just, like, I'm just guessing here, but I would bet that, you know, 90% of things people did research on were fun and scientifically cool, but didn't really get us anywhere, right? Mm. But you don't get to the 10% unless you do the whole 100% because you don't know when you start which of the, nine, which of the 10% is going to be the cool stuff that pays off. Yeah, 100%, yeah. It's all stepping stones as well. It's all part of the process. Yeah. Um, can I ask you for a second, with all of the knowledge that you've gained and accrued over time, and also the opinions, that you informed opinions that you've developed as a consequence, I'm going to ask you for a second to go as far away from the planet as you can in your mind. Imagine <laughs> as far away as you can possibly, to, to your understanding, your your perception of the universe. What does it look like out there? What, the end of the universe, the end of the multiple, what does it look like? Set the scene. Well, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to do, Oliver, as a kid, I, I, I imagined myself being able to fly through the universe you know, at, at great speed because I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there <laughs> and I wanted to be there. You know? And, um, you know, I imagine it would just be this, you know, like we've seen this in movies where they try to, I imagine it would just be this beautiful, awe-inspiring sight to be so far away from, say, our galaxy and, and to look and see our galaxy. You know, I can see other galaxies, but to see our galaxy, you know, to see our sun as a dot in space, to see wow. clusters of galaxies, you know, right, to be in the midst of them and look around and just have galaxies everywhere, you know. Yeah, it would just be absolutely fantastic. You can kind of imagine that maybe, you know, I, I don't know if we're ever going to do that. But I mean, everybody's got a different idea of what it might look like. But somebody as studied as you might be able to put, you know, put more flesh on the bones well, of what it might look like out there. Is it, is it just space and stars and what, what's what's at the edge? <laughs> well, things things are are far apart. It, it's a lot of darkness. Um, galaxies, if you were close enough to them and they're big enough, they would be spectacular things, you know, in, in your field of view. Um, What's the edge look like? Well, I'm not sure you can get to an edge, right? Because if the galaxy can, or if the universe continues to expand, then the edge is expanding, whatever the edge is, wow. right? And, wow. and um, you know, one model people talk about in the universe is think about you're on a balloon and you're on the surface of the balloon hmm. and you can only be on the surface of the balloon. So there's no edge, right? You, anywhere you go, you're still somewhere in the universe. And that, wow. and so, you know, is that what it's like? Is, would it be like that? Could I get to an edge? There's a famous woodcut uh, from, oh, geez, the 1500s or something. You know, it was a time when the Catholic Church was ruling everything. And 
and it was kind of scary to be a scientist and uh, to to do things against Catholic Church. But there was this this woodcut in a book, and I, I don't I'm sorry I don't know the book where it came from or or what it was done, but it, it was a guy who was on his hands and knees, and above him was the the hemisphere of of the universe, you know, with stars and all that, and he had stuck his head through one of the one of the pieces of the hemisphere of of the bubble of sky above him and he's looking to see what's out there you know what's on the other side of the sky because you you think yeah. you know there's all these pictures the sky is this bubble around the earth right and and if i could look through that bubble would i see heaven right and it never shows you what he sees it just shows you his head stuck through it and uh <laughs> brilliant wonderful <laughs> open-ended is it impossible to be an is it impossible to at once be an astrophysicist and truly believe in god which does that Venn diagram exist? Well, I, I certainly know many scientists that believe in God. And I, and I know scientists that don't. And so I think, yeah, of course it's possible um, to do that. Um, well, I, it's almost like humanity's drawing this picture all the time as we go through evolution. And there are some areas of the picture which haven't been drawn yet. And this is one of them, isn't it? Our understanding of the universe. The only way I can tell it is some kind of time loop you know, bending of time so that actually it's this like infinite loop. That's that's how I imagine it in my very visual mind. Yeah, I, I, I you know the greatest thing I, I love about being a, a person, I would say, I was going to say a scientist, but the thing about being a person is if you, if you have a question and you dig into finding the answer to that question, it almost always leads to more questions. And And to me, the pursuit of of knowing things, it is just so much fun. It's like little mystery stories all the time. And in one of my greatest moments in my life, which has happened many times to me, and it's and it continues to be one of the greatest moments in my life, is when I know something about something in the universe, about some star, or some planet, or something, and and nobody else knows it but me. So I know it, and wow. and for a brief yeah. time. I'm the only one that knows it. And, and I might be wrong. But, That's amazing. That, That's right? truly and amazing. And you tell this to some people and they say, yeah, and? I say, but you don't understand. <laughs> I, I know this thing, right? And, and nobody else but me knows it. And some people just don't get it. But mm -hmm. to me, that is that is just such a moment. And well, it's truly pioneering, well, it, isn't it? it? You know, it, it does it for me. I mean, you know, I believe life is kind of carrots and sticks, and I'm all about the carrots. Do you think um, we pretty much know it all now? I mean, how much more is there to discover? Like a few hundred years ago, we thought the Earth was flat. Do you think that a few hundred years from now, we will understand something which is completely unfathomable to us now, like a new dimension, a new consciousness, you know, an understanding of the oneness? Do you think we're still going to learn exponentially? Or do you think we really, because of our grasp, of cur our current grasp of physics and science, that we, we really know most of what the deal is now? Nah, I, I think we're fooling ourselves if we ever think we wow. know everything. And you know, my comment before about a question leads to other questions, I think you can always know more. And you know, I have no idea if what, what learning exponentially means, if we've done that or not. I think if I look back a hundred years before where we are today, you, you think of people as, as smart, but just, you know, how could they have missed some of these obvious things? How, how did they think, you know, like the earth is flat? How did, <laughs> you know, how did 
how did people think chemical reactions work this way? How did people think that diseases? So we, we had primitive thoughts then, right? And, and, and science and other, other ways we've learned things. And I can't imagine that 100 years from now, people will be sitting around saying, geez, I wish I had something to think about. We, we, we know everything, you know, I mean. And do you, think, do you think that people will look back in 100 years and go, wow, they thought that about, they held that belief, strong held belief about the world. I sure hope so. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to be looking, you know, us, well, these guys actually had to use computers and talk to each other. They couldn't just, you know, mentally connect or something. I mean, I don't know what it will be, but yeah, well, I sure hope so that, you know, they'll look back and think we're just as primitive as people were 100 years ago. But, but we also have to remember that people aren't stupid. People 100 years ago weren't dumb, right? It wasn't that, right. it wasn't that they couldn't think of new ideas. They, they knew stuff. And they had technology at the time, and they used it to learn more. It's the same thing today. I mean, people, people aren't stupid. I mean, and, you know, people are smart in so many ways. You know, we, we talk about, oh, you work for NASA. Oh, you're so smart. You know, you, you spend your life studying a subject, and, and you probably know more than other people on that subject. Well, geez, I would mm -hmm. sure hope so, right? Because <laughs> you spend your life learning about it, right? But I was, I was at a... I was at a diner once. I love diners. They're just, you know, so, so cool. And I don't know. I like, I'm with you. I like the counter. Let's go for a long breakfast in a diner. Yeah, absolutely. And I sit at the counters and, and I'm pretty chatty and I'm pretty social. And so I'm, I was talking to somebody next to me and this person was a, was a long haul truck driver. And I have to say, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a truck driver. Trucks are cool. I still think <laughs> trucks are cool. Um, big stuff is cool, right? I mean, people make this, right? Somebody made this big thing anyway. And, um, I wanted to be a train engineer, you know, just big stuff anyway. And so I was talking to this, to this person and they were, they were just so fascinating. I mean, I, I find people fascinating. Everybody has, has stuff they know. Everybody has mm -hmm. information to tell you. Everybody has great stories and great knowledge to share with you. And, and this person was telling me not, I, I was asking about trucks. So I guess I said, I wanted to be a truck driver and I wanted to do this. I want to do that. And he started telling me at first about, how hard it is to be a truck driver. You know, he says, well, you might've liked it, but, but eventually as we were chatting, you, you could see that, that he loved his job. You could start hearing the stories change from it, it, it's not a great job to it's a great job. You could hear the stories change from, you know, the things that I've seen and the things that I learned and, yeah. and telling me about driving different kinds of trucks and driving in different conditions. I mean, this person knew so much stuff, right? And then we started talking about families and telling me about how their hard work was so important to them because he wanted his, his kids to grow up. And, and I was waiting for him to say, grow up and go to college, right? Because we all think, oh, that's right. what everybody should do. Grow up and go to college. Yeah. And, and I don't think everybody should grow up and go to college. I mean, Gosh, the school of life. But yeah, it's not the only one. It's social conditioning again, isn't it? And he said he wanted his kids to grow up and be happy. Right? Nice. And to me, that was, that was just such a moment, you know? Um, and, and that's what we all want, right? We all want to be happy. And we all want to be happy in different ways. And I think if a, person, if a person's a thinker and not just a believer, that's, that's the kind of people you want, right? The story you were just telling me, it's sort of the guy, you know, the way he was talking so enthusiastically about what he did, it speaks to passion again, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. He was passionate, passionate about what he did. Yeah. And it, to some people might not seem the most noble pursuit, but to him, it was, you know, it was exactly what made him happy. Absolutely. And we all should be, Which is the key to life. Yeah, absolutely. You should be passionate about what you do or, she, or you should go do something else. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah.
it's amazing, isn't it? The fuel that you get from doing something which you really enjoy. Do you ever feel like massively stressed at work? Do you ever feel like you hate it? Or is it really no, just the sure. best job in the world? You know, there's days when I hate my job. You know, every day is not a scientific discovery, right? I mean, you know, of there's, there's days when I have to do bureaucratic stuff. There's days when I have to fill out paperwork. There's days when I have to attend meetings that I really don't want to go to. Yeah, you know, we all have that kind of stuff. And there are days... Um, when my job, you know, like the eight, eight or 10 hours are passed and I'll say, wow, what did I do today? You know, <laughs> then there's other days that are just magical, you know, and, mm. and those are the great, but you can't have the magical days without the rest of the humdrum. That's right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and those are the days where maybe you make a discovery or those are the days where you have a problem that you can't solve, but it's so interesting to be thinking of how I'm going to solve that problem. And re-looking at, you know, re-reading papers, re-reading books, re-learning some part of math or physics that you forgot because you haven't used it in 10 years or 20 years. I don't know. And, and those to me are like these, as I say, these little detective stories, these little magical parts of it. Well, I'm, I'm never Marvelous. sorry that, that this is what I did. I'm always very excited about my job. If I, if I had a maybe a, a small sorry, it would be, that I can't go through life and do many other jobs that I would be passionate about. Oh, wow. But do you think, in your opinion, is that the key to happiness, doing something which gives you a sense of purpose? It's certainly, certainly a big one for me. I, I can't swear for other mm. people. Um, you know, some people I know, they, their job is a way to make money to do what they have fun at. Mm. And, you know, so, you know, can I say that's bad or good? No, not at all. If it, if it works for them if i work eight hours a job that's okay but now i come home and i i ride my bicycle 20 miles or i come home and i watch my big screen tv i mean you know for me that the bike ride is pretty cool but the tv you know does nothing for me. <laughs> it just yeah, nothing for me. but you know for for other people if, if that makes them happy you know we can't deny that right we can't deny that yeah, but again, it's just that paradox, isn't it? Because the TV in so many ways seems to erode your sense, your desire for real discovery of science and nature. And um, the thing that, which I've already touched upon, which really excites me is the idea of what, how things might be in a hundred years time and how people will think back to a hundred years ago and think, I can't believe people thought that at that time. Yeah. Um, and in terms of pushing our knowledge of the universe and knowledge of science, I was always very, um, excited by the Large Hadron Collider, is that what it's called, mm. the CERN yeah. thing? Yeah, uh, But it's, okay, so it must have been going like a decade now, and I remember like there was so much hype, and it was built at huge expense, and you know, there were all these sound bites coming out, like, when this thing gets going, <laughs> it will forever change our very understanding of the very building blocks of humanity, you yeah. know? So, but it's 10 years on now, and my understanding of the building blocks of humanity haven't really changed. Like, I do understand the rudiments of the Large Hadron Collider, yeah. but is there, and what do you know about it? Can you give me any sort of update on, on how that's going and what it's been doing? Well, I, again, I'm not an expert. That's a, an area of particle physics, and that's you know, not really where I work. But one of, the, one of the very cool things that we all say about our research, and this applies directly to your question here, my research will change my understanding of the universe. The question is, does it matter and who does it matter to? Right? So, yeah, who does it benefit? Yeah, and, and who does it benefit, right. So I think we come back to where we talked before. I know something about a star. I know that that star has star spots. I know that that star rotates every 30 days. 
that that star has five planets that orbit around it. Now, is that cool? Yes. Does that change our basic understanding of the universe? Sure. Because now I can start looking at star after star after star, and I can find other planets. And I can tell you, right. there are, we know of 4,000 other planets that exist outside our solar system. And that leads to this number we talked about before, 20 billion planets that might be like the Earth. Okay, that's pretty cool and changing things. But does, does, that, does that benefit people? And I would say the answer is yes. And, and the way it benefits people is from the stuff that we learned along the way to get mm. to that, to that point that matters to 10 geeky scientists, that stuff will eventually trickle into society, not all of it, right. but some of it, and society will benefit greatly from those things that we made. And society mm. will never know, in most cases, that I pick up this cup, I use my microwave oven, my car can drive itself down the road. They'll never know that those things came from somebody doing research in some area and having this geeky moment at the end, but they benefit from it. It's so true. Connecting the dots on those sorts of things. You're always imagining this unbelievable, almost visually unfathomable result of, you know, the Large Hadron Collider in a few years' time that we'll see, like, you know, wormholes or something like that. Actually, there are... There are some far more practical, you know, byproducts of it. And, and you might, but, you know, certainly results from there are fabulous now. And the results that they, you know, they were looking for the, the particle, right? They were looking for this great matter. Yeah. And yeah, yeah and, of course, the God particle. Yeah. It? And they found something, but it wasn't what they expected. So who right. was that? I mean, I, and that just opened a whole other can yeah, of worms. I mean, I love when my science projects tell me information that is, is not the information I thought it was going to be. Right, I mean, not, not the information you set out to that's get. That's right, yeah. I don't know how many projects mm. I've started, and I had this idea where I was going, and you don't go there. You go somewhere else, and you find something incredibly different than what you thought, and it changes mm. your mind, and it changes your view, but it leads you to finding other stuff. And, you know, that's, that's the coolest journey. Wow. What's the strangest thing you've ever seen? Yeah, strangest thing I've ever seen. Well, our friend Jim asked me that too, because he, he had just come from your, your podcast and he said, <laughs> he asked me this and he told me his answer, but my answer is not going to be his answer. You know, there's, there's many strange things. Um, I don't know. The strangest thing I've ever seen, whew, man, there's some really cool, weird insects, but probably the strangest thing, you know, in, in a sense of, the mo probably and also probably the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I was, I was wow. at an observatory on the Canary Islands. So the Canary Islands are off the coast of Africa. Right. Yeah, I've been there. Okay, and, and it's one of the one of the premier sites in the world to have observatories. And I was very wow. Why? Like lack of light pollution, um, positioning. Lack of light pollution, tall mountains. You're you're out on the ocean, much like the observatories in Hawaii and much like the observatories in Chile, where the prevailing wind comes across, you know, thousands or hundreds of miles of ocean before it gets to you. So it means that the air that flows over top of you is, is pretty laminar. It's not very disturbed. And so if, if I'm in the middle of the United States in a mountain, the air that flows over my observatory has come over a bunch of land. And so it's had mountains wow. and valleys and, and it gets all turbulent and stuff. But if you're at a place like the Canary Islands or Chile or South Africa or these very great sites in the world for ground-based telescopes, 
it's almost always because the air flows from a, a massive amount of ocean before it gets to you, and it's pretty laminar most of the time. Okay. So I was there. I was fortunate to be there as as uh, just after I was a graduate student working on an instrument that we had built, and we were uh, doing a big survey with. And it happened to be one of the nights, we were there in November, and it happened to be the, the time of the Leonids meteor shower. And meteor showers are always great, and you're out at observatories, okay. so the sky is so dark. It's just, if, if you've never been in a dark sky, you, you just can't imagine that the sky is so dark. You can see shadows yeah. from the light from the Milky Way. Oh like, my God. Light pollution is such a shame, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's such a like, shame. You know, we all can go somewhere, right? We all can drive out of a city and look at the night sky, and I recommend we all do it if you haven't done it. Right. So we went outside. We, we were doing observing, so we went outside the telescope dome. We're just standing outside the telescope looking up at the sky and thinking, oh, let's go look at a few of the meteors. It's time. It'll be cool. And it was... It was by far the weirdest, coolest, most beautiful sight I've ever seen in the night sky, and, and maybe ever. There were so many meteors that oh my God. You, you could not not see a streak of a meteor ever for probably an hour. It was the whole wow. sky was just filled with bright meteor streaks, you know, these blinding things of streaks of light in the sky. Just tremendously. It was like that, that, that drawing you see of London in some famous meteor shower that the entire sky yes. was just meteor. I know the one. Yeah, it was just mm. absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure that will never happen to me again. It just happened to be the right place at the right time for that particular meteor shower on that night. And, and what a special treat, you know? So, yeah, that was probably oh the coolest, gosh. weirdest thing I've ever seen. That's amazing. So beautiful. If there's no light pollution, would we, and, there's, and the skies are clear, would we see shooting stars and meteors every night? And would we see them littering the sky? You, you would see them every night because they occur every night. There aren't meteor showers every night, but there are meteors every night. The earth, the earth and little particles in space are always running into each other. But that kind of a scene is incredibly rare. I mean, one, you've got to be in a dark space, but then that scene, that, that thing depends on literally where you are on the earth for that little bit of time, which just happens to be the time the large part of that meteor stream was running into the earth's atmosphere. So it's this pretty rare. I don't know if you've got uh, kids, but you'd be the most fantastic dad. And if you were my dad, <laughs> you would never get to sleep each night because you tuck me in and I'd ask a question and I'd just keep asking more and more questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and you'd have the answers for them. <laughs> well, I do have two children um, right. and, and neither of them went into science, although they both are kind of fascinated by science and, and have other, I think, lovely characteristics. They're both very lovely, nice people. And, and we, we do talk a lot. And, and uh, I hope they, they think I'm a good dad. They've told me that. And we had many conversations and they often didn't get to sleep much to their mother's chagrin at times. But. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, it, it ties in really nicely. To, I'm going to ask you a few quick fire questions to finish. I've taken so much of your time. I'm, my wife is six months pregnant. I'm about to have my first child. Oh, well, congratulations. And maybe this, thank you so much. Thank maybe this ties into my next question of what makes you most happy? Oh, boy. Jeez, there are so many things. You know, every day I try to think of something that makes me happy. Um, you know, certainly talking to my kids. My oldest son has a grandson. Talking to him makes me happy. He's just a blast. Is parenthood as good as it's cracked up to be? <laughs> it is, you know. You get to rile them up and then leave them. It's great. 
Um, you know, reading a, reading a great sentence in a book makes me happy. Reading, uh, you know, eating a good meal makes me happy. Uh, seeing my partner Sally come home from work, uh, running, running, into, running into a person at a diner and chatting with them for a half an hour. I mean, you know, life is, is about experiences and, and they all can be- You're very much talking about being in the present as well. The things that make you feel like you're in the present make you really happy. And that's, that's so important, isn't I, it? Enjoying the present. I try to be in the present because that's the moment you have, right? Yeah. you have absolutely and you sound like quite a sociable guy i i like chatting with people yep <laughs> nice um everybody teaches you something and i'm the great beneficiary of that thank you so much so um you, you love reading what's your favorite book what's a book that really inspires you you know i i saw that question you were gonna ask my favorite book and i thought about it and i thought about it and so odd it, well it's i think i have no fair. I can't find one book. I can't think of one book that was, oh my God, that was the greatest thing. Many books are the greatest things. Um, you know, yeah. I thought about some to, because I knew you were gonna ask me this question, but uh like the Hitchhiker's Guide series. That was, that was oh, great, right? Man. Uh Dracula by Bram Stoker, you know, written in the early nineteen mm hundreds. -hmm. Um Mysteries by Gaston LaRue, H. G. Wells's story, uh wow. Richard Yates books about uh, about life and people. Um you know, they're all, they're all these things you read them and make, they change you. Right. And, and then you want to read something else. And, you know, my, my, and they resonate with you at certain times in your life as well. So it'd be absolutely. a disservice to speak about one book in particular. Yeah. Have you read the Yuval Noah Harari books? I have read those. Yes. Those are, you know, yeah. part of the moments too. And so I can't, I can't say there's a book, but I, for me, I like reading all kinds of books. And so I like science books as well too. And science fiction, of course, for me and monster movies, I kind of like that stuff, but I, I pick books in a very, a very, I would say, random way. You know, I ask people what, what they like. I go to the library book sales. I, I peruse old bookstores. Uh, we have a lot Beautiful. of these in our neighborhood. We have these libraries, you know, where people have a little box outside their house. And I love that. That's one of the beautiful things of America, one of the many beautiful things of America. I haven't seen that elsewhere. Yeah, and, and I just love books of all kinds. And if a book is well-written and has a great story and, and has good facts or good insights, I find them all fascinating. And I think just like talking to different people, you learn something great and you learn something interesting in, in, in almost every book you read. Great to, to speak to a bookworm. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed by your propensity to read. Um, so what about people? Is there somebody, a figure that particularly inspires you? You know, I, I think it's much like books. You know, my, my parents are inspirations to me, much more so in my later life than they ever were when I was a kid. And wow. they were my parents. Um, I think people like, you know, Helen Keller or mm. um, uh, Michelle Obama or, jeez, um, I don't know. When is she going to step into the ring properly? Yeah, I hear you on that. You know, I was kind of thinking she might be in the running for the vice president candidate, but... Right. Again, it's a thankless task, isn't it? It's such a thankless yeah, task is, getting involved but, in politics. You know, but so you astronauts, right? Getting into a room and saying you're going to go to the moon? I mean, wow. You know, it's the guts and the bravado of that, you know? Jeez, um, I don't know. You know, I, medics in the First World War. I read stories about medics in the First World War. Hey, people are inspirational. People do all kinds of great, cool things. And, and yeah, you know, you could name the list of, you know, great presidents or great speakers or famous people. Everybody's famous, right? Everybody does cool human things. And there's a story out there in everyone. We're all inspirational if, if you just talk to people and listen. 
know, so everybody listening to this, you know, go meet your neighbor, talk to your neighbor, find out something about them. You know, Our community do- is literally dissolving, isn't it? Yeah, let's do community out of your house and be part of your community. Wow, what a guy. Well, what do you think the biggest challenge facing humanity is right now? Other than the Martin Luther King quote and those three things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's getting, somehow I, I think getting humanity to realize that, you know, humanity is pretty important and, and people are important and money is not. Having stuff is not. You know, let's, let's, you know, let's get good things for our people in medicine and education and, and let's, you know, get people out of poverty. That's what's important. It's never as good when you get that shiny thing, is it? You think it's going to be so good and you're always disappointed and you always become bored of it so quickly. Yeah, or shiny. It's just not the thing. Yeah, it's a momentary fix, right? It's like a, a drug, you know, you, you get it and then you just want more. And, and but, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing like helping community. I mean, there's nothing like seeing a gleam in a kid's eye when, when they've, they've learned something or, you know, they've done something and accomplished something. When I look at the world now, I just see a group of individuals who are greater than the sum of the whole. You know, the sum should be greater than the parts, but it's not that way around, is it? We, it's very us versus them. We have this mentality. Yeah, yeah. And we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be against each other. We should be with each other. Yeah. Um, is, uh, this is the most random question ever and completely out of context, but <laughs> is time travel possible? <laughs> I love, okay, so before you ask me the most random question, I will tell you the most random number. <laughs> the most random number is 17. And, and there's a scientific study of this that was done about 30 years ago by, by some students at the University of Toronto. They asked a thousand people to name a number and 17 was the number that was named the least, I think between zero and a hundred. So therefore they concluded it's the most random number. So there you go. That is such a bizarre <laughs> experiment. <laughs> Somebody was telling me recently that prime numbers are really weird. What's so weird about prime numbers? Or is that too mathsy? No, I mean, prime numbers are weird things just because they're only divisible by themselves and one. And so, you know, that, that's okay. Oh, so what's the mystery behind prime numbers? There's some crazy weird mystery. Well, right? there's this thing, the whole Fibonacci series, and it was tied mm-hmm. into tied into these books. Uh, what, were, what were the books? Um, uh, the Da Vinci Code, you know, where people think, the, people think the Illuminati are running the world and whatever. And, yeah. I would just like to say, if the if the Illuminati are running the world, they better get doing a better job. <laughs> so true. Can I ask you how you think the world is going to end? Uh, what do you mean by that? People or the planet? So that's a really, really good distinction. Yeah. How is humankind going to end? Yeah, you know, I think a virus has a pretty good shot given our our past past the uh, six months here. You know, I mean, we've had some viruses in the past. Of course, the great flu in the 1900s, it's, you know, 1919. Uh, the Spanish flu, I think, was the name we gave to it, although I believe it started in Oklahoma or Kansas. But, um, you know, the, those, those kinds of things, and now the current thing with COVID, you know, you can imagine a virus that's much more uh, rough Deadly. on it than this one, you know, mm-hmm. and, and one that we, we maybe really can't ever get past. And I, I don't think it'll be this one, but... Viruses are incredible things, whatever they are. You know, I'm not sure they're really life as we know it, but I don't know. Virus has a pretty good shot. Um, you know, disease could be bad. I, I think in the 60s and 70s, people always would say nuclear war. 
Yeah, I still give that a possible shot, but I think we're we're less likely now. Um, I hope we I, I hope that we end by most people have a nice long age, and you know they pass away as old age, and the rest of us in the next three billion years figure out how to colonize somewhere else. But it, it was a potentially such a dark question, and you've given it such a beautiful light um, answer. <laughs> uh, I love your sense of positivity and hope. You sound like quite a hope, hopeful person in general. Uh, yeah, I think I am. You're an amazing guy. I, I've just been speaking to you for two hours, and it feels like I'm just scratching the surface. Wow. I thank well, you. What fun. I know. Two <laughs> hours, dude. I thank you so much. I, I, being able to pick your brain is one of the great joys of my year. Uh, well, having a chat with you is one of the great joys of mine, so thank you all. The Natural High. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.